0: Some, there's lots of people that are gone today. There's a, another activity going on at the school, but I'm really glad to see that we have a significant group of people here this morning. I would like to invite you, before we enter our study this morning, to just bow your heads as we ask the Lord's guidance. Father heaven, thank you for the privilege of being in your house of worship on your holy Sabbath. Our hearts thrill with joy because we can take this time away from my everyday activities to commune with you. We ask, Lord, that as we open your holy word this morning, that through your spirit you will speak to our hearts. Help us to build our hope on Jesus and only on Jesus, because we know that only he can lead us to eternal life. We thank you for listening to our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Last month, when my wife and I were flying back from Medellin, Colombia, I had an interesting experience with it, which I've never had before. On the flight from Miami to Los Angeles, I was reading a book uh, which is entitled The Thunder of Justice. Pretty ominous sounding title, isn't it? And while I was reading, the flight attendants went through the aisles of the plane and they were serving drinks, as they normally do. Now, one of the male flight attendants that came uh, by where I was sitting to serve us noticed the title of the book that I was reading. And he said, You know, that's a pretty ominous sounding title to that book. What are you reading? I said, well, you know, this is a book about all of the supposed apparitions of the Virgin Mary all over the world in these last days. I said, I'm a minister, and I'm in the process of preparing a series of sermons on what the Bible has to say about Mary. And Mary in ancient religions as the backdrop for uh, the doctrine of Mary as it's held in uh, the Roman Catholic Church. And, uh, you know, we conversed for a few moments. They continued serving. And a few minutes later, a lady flight attendant came to where I was sitting. Evidently, this male flight attendant had gone up and said, Hey, there's a guy back there that you need to talk to. Because he's been talking to me about Mary and about apparitions. Evidently, they were good friends. And he knew that she needed to talk to a, a, a pastor. And so that flight attendant... Now, I've talked to many people on airplanes before. What makes this unique is that this was a flight attendant. Uh, You know, flight attendants don't become really too much involved with passengers that they don't know. But anyway, she knelt there in the aisle, and she started conversing with me. She said, I have a very weak faith. I said, well, why is that? She says, well, I fear... God. I'm afraid of God. And I said to her, well, have you ever tried uh, coming in prayer to Jesus Christ? She said, well, I'm not too fond of Jesus either. I'm also afraid of Him. And I said to her, what is your religious background? And by the way, I'm making no reflection here on Roman Catholics. Roman Catholic Church has many millions of loving and lovely people. But I'm just reflecting the conversation that I had with her. She said, you know, I'm a Roman Catholic. That's my religious background. And she says, in my church, you are taught to come to God not directly or to Jesus directly, but you're supposed to come through the Virgin Mary. And I said to her, well, I realize that that is uh, true because I just got through going to several cathedrals in the city of Medellin where I actually observed what was happening and uh, how people behaved as they entered the cathedrals for the Mass. And then she said to me, Pastor, do you believe that Mother Teresa is in heaven? Mother Teresa just died. I think the day before. And I said, well, actually not. Because the Bible says that the dead don't know anything. So she said, well, I guess that would mean then that the Virgin Mary can't hear my prayers either. And I said, well, uh, you're on the right track. And so we started studying what the Bible has to say about the state of the dead. We must have spoken for at least ten minutes. She kneeling in the aisle with passengers going to the restroom by her and she kind of wiggling out of the way. And then she did something which I'm sure is very unusual. She gave me her card and she wrote her home address on the back side of the card. And I said, would you like me to send you some material uh, for you to read on who Jesus really is and how you can come to Jesus, how Jesus loves you, How you can trust him for your salvation, as your intercessor, as your advocate. She said, I'd love that. And so she wrote her address on the back of the card, and she gave me the card. When I got here, I sent her a copy of Steps to Christ, and I sent her a copy of Bible readings for the home. Her name is Lisa Schwarz, and I have not heard from her yet. I'm hoping that she's digesting the material that I sent her, but I do hope to hear from her if I don't hear from her soon, I will uh, be in contact with her. Why was it that specifically I was reading the book Thunder of Justice and I was studying to present a series on Mary and then this stewardess or this flight attendant comes and wants to talk about this very subject. You know, in the things of God there is no such thing as coincidence. In God there is what is known at Providence. Now, the title of our sermon this morning is "Who is the fairest of them all?" Well, I'm sure that you are aware of where we're going, because we're going to find this morning in our study that there are two individuals in Roman Catholic theology that are rivaling, rivaling for our devotion and for our love. And it's not God's intention that it be so. But it has been created in this way by human beings. Now let me review briefly what we have studied about Mary from the Bible. Because we had a whole subject you remember in our first in this series on what the Bible has to say about Mary. We know first of all that Mary was a great woman. God chose the best Woman of that day and age that he could have to bring Jesus Christ into the world. We know she was a wonderful and dedicated mother. A loving mother who taught Jesus well because Jesus amazed the religious leaders with his teachings. And part of that was due to the training that he had received from his mother. We have no record of Mary's birth, but we do know that she was of David's line. She was of royal blood. The Bible does not say anywhere that Mary was immaculately conceived. Nor does the Bible say that she was preserved from actual sinning throughout her whole life. In fact, the Bible indicates that Mary believed that she needed a savior because in Luke chapter 1:46 through 47 she says that she rejoices in God, her savior. So there's no indication in the Bible that she was immaculately conceived without sin or that she actually lived her whole life without committing acts of sin. We know that she was a virgin. We know that Jesus was conceived in the womb of a virgin. But the Bible never teaches that she, that Jesus was born of a perpetual virgin. In other words, there's no indication in the Bible that Mary was perpetually a virgin, even after the birth of Jesus. We know, for example, uh, we read from Psalm 69. It speaks about uh, the Mary in prophecy having uh, sons, children. We notice that Jesus is the firstborn son of Mary. Firstborn would indicate children after this. The Bible says that Joseph did not know her until Jesus had been born, indicating that Uh, She was not perpetually a virgin, although when she had Jesus, she was a virgin. The Bible says that Mary was the mother of Jesus, the man. It is not technically correct to say that Mary was the mother of God, even though if you understand this as meaning that Jesus, the God and man, were brought into the world by Mary, then you could say that Mary brought into the world the God-man. But the divine nature of Jesus existed before this because Jesus said in John 17, verse 5, Glorify me with that glory I had with you before the world was. In fact, the Bible says Jesus created all things, which means that Mary was created by Jesus. So Mary was not the mother of God in the strictest strictest sense of the word. She could be called the mother of God in the sense that she brought the God-man into the world. We also notice that Mary was greatly favored by God. She was not full of grace. She was greatly favored by God. She would be called blessed. Because imagine having the privilege of bringing the God-man into the world. We notice also in our study that the last mention of Mary is in Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, where she's with the apostles in the upper room and they're praying for the gift of the Holy Spirit. After this, there's no mention of Mary in Holy Scripture. She simply disappears from the biblical account. And some people say, well, that must mean that she went to heaven. But the fact is that the New Testament does not mention the death of any of the apostles either. And so silence does not mean that she necessarily went to heaven at the moment of her death. This is in in short and nutshell form what Scripture has to say about Mary. Now let's talk about Jesus. What does the Bible say about Jesus? And I'm only going to refer to these verses because our time is limited. But I'd remind those who do not know that you can get a full take of this presentation and the other presentations. I just want us to get a clear picture about what the Bible says of Jesus. First, the Bible teaches that Jesus was born immaculate. Luke 1, verse 35 tells us that He is that holy thing. He was born with a spiritually alive spiritual nature. He was not born like all of us are born. He was born that holy thing of God. And the Bible tells us also that Jesus never sinned, never committed actual sin. So it's true that Jesus was immaculately conceived, And it's true that Jesus, throughout his life, never committed an act of sin. Hebrews 7.26 speaks of Jesus as holy, blameless, separated from sinners. Jesus himself said, Which of you who are gathered here convicts me of sin? John chapter 1 and verse 14 speaks of Jesus as full of grace. Full of grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace, according to Scripture, whereas Mary is spoken of as greatly favored. The Bible teaches that Jesus is fully man, completely human in every sense of the word. John one fourteen says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Even after his resurrection, the Bible tells us that the Lord Jesus had a body, yet a spiritual body, that had flesh and bones. The Bible says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brethren, he is our brother, because he shares our human nature. He was God in the flesh. Not only was Jesus fully and completely man, but Jesus is God from all eternity. It says in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9 that in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The Bible teaches us that because Jesus became a human being and shared in our flesh and in our blood, he is loving. He is kind. He is accessible. He is compassionate. He is empathetic and sympathetic. He is touchable. He is loving. And He wants everyone to be saved. You find, for example, texts such as Romans 5, verse 8, where it speaks not only about Jesus loving us, but the Father loving us. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. God is a God of love and kindness and compassion. And Jesus particularly so, because He is the flesh of our flesh and bone of our bones. Nothing will separate us from the love of Jesus. It says in Romans 8 and verse 35. The Bible teaches that Jesus died and resurrected and ascended to heaven. This is very clear in Scripture. He died, resurrected, and he went through an assumption. In other words, he ascended to heaven. Acts chapter 1 and verses 9 through 11 tells us that Jesus ascended to heaven. In Hebrews chapter 7, I would like to invite you to turn with me there. Hebrews chapter 7 And verses 23 and 24, it tells us that Jesus is our only high priest. It says there in Hebrews chapter 7 and verses 23 and 24, and there, there were many priests, speaking about the old system, the Old Testament, because they were prevented by death from continuing. Verse 24, but he, that is Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. In other words, the Bible teaches that Jesus is our only high priest. The Bible also teaches that Jesus is our only advocate, our only lawyer, our only representative before the Father. Notice what it says in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. My little children, these things are right to you that you may sin, not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous." Notice that Jesus is spoken of as the advocate. Scripture teaches us that Jesus is our only intercessor. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5 says that we have one intercessor between God and man, Jesus Christ, the man. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is our only Savior. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 says, For there is no other name given to men under heaven whereby we might be saved. Jesus is spoken of as the ladder in John 1 verse 51. The angels of God ascend and descend upon the Son of Man. Jesus is the ladder because as the top of the ladder reaches to heaven, Jesus is God. The bottom of the ladder reaches earth, Jesus is man. In other words, to be the ladder, he needs to be God and he needs to be man. He is the bridge, in other words, between heaven and earth. He is the ladder. The Bible teaches that we are supposed to pray to the Father in the name of Jesus. And anything that we request to the Father, if it's in in the Father's will, through Jesus, he will give us. Notice what it says in John chapter 16. John chapter 16 and verses 26 and 27. It says the following, In that day you will ask in my name, that is in the name of Jesus, and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. So we come directly to the Father through whom? Through Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 4, it tells us that Jesus helps when we're tempted. It says, we do not have a high priest who is not able to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was tempted in all things such as we are, yet without sin. Then it says, let us draw close or near to the throne of grace, that we might might find grace and help in time of need. In other words, Jesus is the one who helps us in our temptations. John 14, verse 6 says, Jesus speaking, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 6 speaks of Jesus as the only one who can bring blessing upon us. It says that the Father blesses us through Jesus Christ our Lord. In 1 Corinthians 3, 11, it tells us that there no one can lay any other foundation than the one that has been laid. And that foundation is Jesus. In John 10 and verse 9, the Lord Jesus says, I am the door. In other words, if you want to be saved, you must go through Jesus, who is the door. Hebrews 7.27 teaches us that Jesus offered up his own life. Now you're wondering why I'm sharing all of these details, because I'm going to talk about something else a little bit later on. So remember everything that I'm sharing with you at this point from the Bible. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 7, 27 that Jesus offered up His own life as a sacrifice for sin. Ephesians 1, verse 7 says that Jesus is the Redeemer. We have redemption through His blood. Hebrews 6, verse 18 tells us that we can flee to Jesus for refuge and for protection. Hebrews 4, verse 15 tells us that Jesus pours out His grace upon us. He is an endless source of grace. Psalm 84, verse 11 and John 1, starting with verse 4, tells us that Jesus is the light. He's the sun rising. He brings light into this world. Colossians 3, verses 3 and 4 says that Jesus is our life and that our life is hidden in Him. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18 tells us that Jesus changes life. It is only Jesus who can change the life. The Bible tells us in first John chapter two and verse two that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. In other words, when man sinned, God said, In order to be just I have to punish the sinner, I have to destroy the sinner, because man has sinned and the wages of sin is death. But Jesus paid the penalty so that we could be redeemed. Jesus propitiated our sins, satisfied, in other words, the demands of divine justice that the law demanded. The Bible tells us that Jesus has a name that is above every other name. That in the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Philippians chapter 2 and verses 9 through 11 and First Thessalonians four thirteen to 17 tells us that if we die, our hope is found in Jesus. And our last thinking moment should be about our hope in Jesus Christ. That is the perspective that the Bible gives of Jesus. Now let's study the Roman Catholic view of Mary. The Roman Catholic Church has four different dogmas about Mary. Now I need to explain what a dogma is. A dogma is an infallible proclamation of the Roman Catholic Church which is officially pronounced in a church council or ex cathedra by the Pope. The word ex cathedra means from the throne. Incidentally, that's the reason why the word cathedral means the place where the bishop has his throne. Now, according to Vatican Council I, which took place in 1870, the proclamations, the official proclamations that are made by the Pope are infallible. They cannot be corrected, they cannot be changed, And they are not wrong. Now what does the Roman Catholic Church teach about Mary? And I'm just sharing with you what they teach. The first dogma is that of the Immaculate Conception, proposed by Pope Pius IX in the year 1854. This is the idea not that Jesus was immaculately conceived, but that Mary herself was immaculately conceived. In other words, Mary did not inherit the sinful, spiritual nature that we all get from Adam. She was conceived sinless. She did not suffer the results of the transgression of Adam. And so Mary came into the world differently than we do. She was immaculately conceived. She was like Jesus, that holy thing. Furthermore, the Roman Catholic Church, in connection with this dogma, teaches that Mary was preserved by divine grace from sinning all her life. She never actually committed a sin in all of her life. But immediately we have a problem. Roman Catholic theology teaches that Mary died, and that after three days she resurrected and she ascended to heaven, what is known as the Assumption of Mary. The question is, if she was conceived immaculate, sinless, and she actually never sinned in her life, why would she die at all? You say, well, Jesus died, and he didn't sin. Yes, but Jesus was bearing the sins of humanity. That's why he died. But if she was immaculately conceived, and she never actually sinned her whole life, why would she even die? So, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Mary is like Jesus, sinless, both in her birth and throughout her life. The second dogma that the Roman Catholic Church teaches is that Mary is the mother of God. And this was proclaimed in the Council of Ephesus in the year 431. It's interesting that uh, at at Ephesus is where the goddess Diana and her son Jupiter were worshipped. It was once again reaffirmed in the Council of Chalcedon in the year 451 with the following words. And incidentally, when this was proclaimed by these church councils, they had the true and correct concept of it, that Mary brought into the world the God-man, but she was not technically the mother of God. But then it, it came to be understood in the technical sense. Notice what the council of Chalcedon declared. Speaking about Jesus, it says, Born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to his manhood. Did you catch that? The mother of God according to his manhood. The Bible never uses the name mother of God for Mary. She is always called the mother of Jesus. In fact, the Bible makes it clear that it's impossible for God to have a beginning because God is eternal. Furthermore, the Bible makes it very, very clear that Jesus created every being in this world, which means that Mary was created by Jesus, not Jesus created, at least in his Godhood, by Mary. The third dogma that the Roman Catholic Church holds is the idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary. She was a virgin when Jesus was conceived in her womb, but she forever remained a virgin after that. In other words, she never had sexual relations with Joseph. Now you would say, why would the Roman Catholic Church want to hold an idea such as this? The reason is simple. In Roman Catholicism, sex is very closely identified with original sin. In fact, it is believed that the original sin that was committed was uh, a sexual sin by uh, Mary. In other words, the fruit of the tree was not a literal fruit. It was having sex. And so original sin is related to sex. And for that reason, sex is looked upon negatively. An argument that is used in Roman Catholic circles is, well, Jesus was born from a womb that was never used, he rode a donkey which was never ridden, and he laid in a tomb that was never used. Now that sounds persuasive, but it doesn't say that the donkey was never used afterwards, and it never says that the tomb was never used afterwards. And the Bible does not say that the womb of Mary was not used afterwards. This is the reason why in the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that if anyone says that the married state is preferable to celibacy, let him be anathema. In other words, let him be accursed is the translation of that in an official conciliar proclamation. In Roman Catholic theology, Sex is evil. It is a necessary evil for procreation. It is not to be practiced, even within marriage, for pleasure. The Bible teaches that marriage is honorable. That God created man originally to procreate in a perfect, sinless world. In fact, the Bible says that marriage is... Is honorable. In other words, within the context of marriage, sex was created by God. If he didn't, why would we have the sexual organs and the sexual machinery that God has given to us? It must have a purpose. The fourth dogma that is taught by the Roman Catholic Church is the assumption of marriage. This was proposed in the year 1950 by Pope Pius XII. Basically, what is taught is that three days after Mary died, even though the Bible does not mention the death of Mary, the angels came with Jesus to personally escort Mary body and soul to heaven. As she was ascending, the angels were singing, Open up ye gates, and the Queen of Heaven shall enter in. But the Bible does not even hint for a moment at the idea of the Assumption of Mary. The last time she's mentioned is in Acts chapter 1 and verse 14. Now when you ask Roman Catholics the reason why they believe that in the Assumption of Mary, even though the Bible mentions absolutely nothing about it, they use arguments such as, well, Enoch and Elijah were transposed to heaven without dying. How much more Mary, who brought the Redeemer into the world... And you'll hear expressions such as, it would be eminently fitting. It would have been most appropriate. There is a long tradition. I read and read and read in preparation for this series from many sources, and those are the arguments that are used. And sometimes they'll say, well, in Revelation 12 it speaks about a woman who's, uh, who's clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head she has a crown of 12 stars. That has to be Mary. And so, if she's in Revelation 12, she's alive. She's not dead. The only problem with that idea is that in Revelation chapter 12, the woman flees into the wilderness. She's not in heaven at all, she's on earth. And in Bible prophecy, a woman represents the church. And furthermore, it says that the woman flees for 1,260 years. That's a long lifespan. And furthermore, if you compare what Revelation says with Daniel, in Revelation 12, verse 6, it says that the woman fled into the wilderness for 1260 years, whereas in Daniel chapter 7, it says that she persecutes God's saints or God's people. The devil persecutes God's saints or God's people for a time, times, and the divining of time. In other words, when you compare Revelation where it says that the woman fled for 1260 years, And Daniel, where it says that the saints are persecuted for 1,260 years, you understand that the woman represents what? Represents the saints. Now, I need to cover with you one more thing. There is one dogma which has not yet been proclaimed by the Roman Catholic Church. It is being spoken of as the final dogma. And it's hoped by many conservative Catholics that this dogma will be proclaimed before the year 2000 by, the Pope, by Pope John Paul II. Now let me tell you, John Paul II is a very staunch Mariologist. In fact, he has dedicated his pontificate to Mary. I'll be sharing with you in the last sermon on this series, in this series that he believes that the Virgin of Fatima saved his life when he was shot. Inside his robe, he has embroidered the, the, uh, the expression totus tus, which means all yours I'm all yours referring to Mary now it's hoped by many conservative Catholics that a fifth and final dogma will be proclaimed officially by the church now this is spoken of in uh, Newsweek magazine in a magazine called The Meaning of Mary August 25, 1997 and you can read it at your leisure but in our very own Fresno Bee's There's an article, Saturday, August 30, 1997, where it speaks about this. Push for a new Mary dogma. Spawns debate. And the idea is to officially declare Mary co-redemptrix of humanity. That means co-redeemer. Mediatrix of all graces. That means that any grace that should come to us from God has to come through Mary. And the third is advocate for the people of God. That means that if we want God to represent us, if we want, want any, anything from God, it's Mary that has to take our request and our petition to God as our advocates. Now, what about this idea of her being co-redemptors? What Roman Catholic theology says that if Mary had said no to Jesus, there would have been no plan of salvation. And for this reason, Mary deserves to be called co-redeemer or co-redemptrix with Jesus because she's the one that made it possible for Jesus to come and redeem the human race. In many Roman Catholic sources, for example, in documents of Vatican II, the official proclamation of Vatican II on Mary, it calls Mary a second Eve or a new Eve. In other words, the first Eve blew it, and the second Eve solved the problem. I would just like to read from the Roman Catholic Catechism on page 125. This is the latest catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. I want you to listen to this. This is uh, number, uh, I said page 125, but it's uh, article or paragraph 494. As St. Irenaeus says, Being obedient, she became the cause, speaking about Mary, the cause of salvation for herself, and for the whole human race. Hence, not a few of the early fathers gladly assert the knot of Eve's disobedience was untied by Mary's obedience. What the Virgin Eve bound through her disbelief, Mary loosened by her faith. Comparing her with Eve, they call Mary the mother of the living and frequently claim death through Eve, life through Mary. But let's reflect on this just a moment. If Mary is a new Eve, and Jesus is a new Adam, then Mary and Jesus must be spouses. Are you with me? So Jesus would be the son of Mary, and he would also be the spouse of Mary. Do you know that's exactly what all ancient pagan religions teach? A mother who is at the same time wife and at the same time mother of the God. Now let's continue. What arguments are brought to bear to try and prove that this dogma needs to be proclaimed? Well, it's interesting. We have so many books here, I don't know what to do with them. You remember I mentioned to you in our last sermon that the Latin Vulgate is translated from the Septuagint, from the Greek Old Testament. See, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. It was translated to Greek, which is known as the the Septuagint, the LXX. And then the Vulgate is in Latin. It was translated from the Greek. And then the Douay version, which is in English, is translated from the Vulgate. So the Douay version is really a translation of a translation of a translation. Now, it's interesting that in the Septuagint, where the Vulgate comes from, and where the Douay version comes from, it says clearly, as I mentioned last time, speaking about Jesus, He shall crush your head. That's the serpent's head. And you, the serpent, will bruise his heel. But do you know how it's translated in the Douay version in the Vulgate? She shall crush your head. Now, you say, are Roman Catholics aware of the fact that, yes, they like the, the Septuagint version to translate the Old Testament into Latin and into English, but when it comes to this particular rendering of the Septuagint, they don't like it too well. Are they aware of this? Yes, they are. In the book by Saint Alphonsus de Ligori, The Glories of Mary, notice what, what he says, and I'll be sharing a little, in a few moments a little bit more about who Ligori was. She will crush your head. Some question whether this refers to Mary. And not rather to Jesus. Since the Septuagint translates it, He shall crush your head. But in the Vulgate, which alone was approved by the Council of Trent, we find she. So in other words, don't follow the ancient versions. Follow what the Church Council says. And so the idea is that she will crush the head of the serpent when the Bible says that it is Jesus through his death and his resurrection that crushes the head of the serpent. Now let me mention a few things as we near close this morning about St. Alphonsus Ligori. St. Alphonsus Ligori lived in the 17th century. And he wrote a book called The Glories of Mary. This is an abridged edition that I have here. The purpose of why he wrote this book is because many of the priests of his day did not believe in the Roman Catholic teachings about Mary. They actually made fun about the idea of the Assumption and the Immaculate Conception and so on. And so he decided that he would write a book defending the Roman Catholic view of Mary. And he's, of course, a Roman Catholic. He's a saint. He's been canonized. Saint Alphonsus Migori. Now, this book is significant because it's not his opinions about Mary. What he does is he takes he does research and finds in the writings of of the scholars, in the writings of the church fathers, in the writings of the theologians, of all of the history of the Roman Catholic Church, what they've said about Mary. So this is really a collection of the Roman Catholic view of Mary. And incidentally, this book has the imprimatur. Do you know what the imprimatur is? It means it, you, you need to look when you find a Roman Catholic book. The first thing that Roman Catholics will look at in the book, because they're told by their bishop, look on the first page or one of the first pages to see if it says Imprimatur. That means that it is a book officially recognized by the Roman Catholic Church and worthy to be read by the faithful. So this is not any old book. This is a compendium, a compendium of everything the Roman Catholic Church has taught about Mary throughout the course of history. I'm going to share with you some quotations. Unfortunately, the clock is our greatest enemy all the time. But I would like to read some statements from this book. Remember, this is not published by any Protestant. This is a book written by a Roman Catholic saint. And it contains the teachings of all of the great fathers and teachers of the Roman Catholic Church. And so I'm not saying this out of my own heart. This is something that is contained in an official pu- publication. I want you to notice, first of all, on page 60, incidentally, you can pick up a copy of this book for a very low charge uh, at the Roman Catholic bookstore here in town. So if I don't get to read them all, uh, you, can, uh, you can pick up a copy and read, some, uh, read the whole book, in fact. On page, uh, let's just uh, for brevity of time, page 62 and 63, it says, Like a loving queen, she takes them, that is the faithful, under her mantle and brings them with her to the judge. And with absolute certainty, she obtains their salvation. In other words, she's the intercessor that brings us to God and brings salvation through her intercession. What does the Bible say about the only intercessor? Jesus. I want you also to notice that Mary is called the door. Who is the door according to the Bible? Jesus. On page 23. Our Blessed Lady once said to St. Bridget in a revelation, I am the Queen of Heaven and the Mother of Mercy. I am the joy of the just and the door through which sinners come to God. On page 102. Of this book. And this book is just filled with quotations such as this. You know, those who know the Bible teaching on this, you know, you kind of cringe a little bit. Not because you don't like Catholics. Hey folks, we love Catholics. You know, there's too much bashing of people. We love Roman Catholic people. But at the same time, we must defend what the Bible teaches. I want you to notice page 102, St. Bonaventure. He's quoting another great saint of the Roman Catholic Church. St. Bonaventure says Mary is called the gate of heaven because no one can enter that blessed kingdom without passing through her. Is that what the Bible teaches? The Bible teaches that Jesus is what? Is the door. Now the Bible teaches that Jesus offered his own life for the salvation of human beings. Notice what Ligori says on page 29 of his book. But when he saw Mary's burning desire to help in human redemption, he so arranged matters that she should cooperate in our redemption. Notice already the idea of co-redemptrix. He so arranged matters that she should cooperate in our redemption by the offering and sacrifice of her son's life. And in this way become the mother of our souls. Our Lord manifested this intention when he looked down from the cross at his Mary and St. John and, and said to Mary, There is your Son. This amounted to saying, there is the whole human race which right now is being born to the life of grace because you are offering my life for the salvation of all. In other words, it's Mary offering the life of Jesus for salvation when Scripture says that Jesus offered his own life for salvation. On pages 35 and 36 of this book. Pages 35 and 36. Thus, as it is written of the Eternal Father, listen to this, that God so loved the world as to give His only begotten Son, so also we can say of Mary that she so loved the world as to give Her only begotten Son. And when did she give Him? When she gave Him permission to deliver Himself to death. She gave Him to us when she might have pleaded with the judges for his life. But Mary forbore to say one word in favor of her son, lest she prevent that death on which our salvation depended. And now listen to this on page 36. She did this with such constancy, constancy, that is offering her son, that if there had been no executioners, she herself would have crucified him to fulfill the wish of his eternal father. Should I read a few more? I have a whole page of them. Let me just read a few more. Being that you said you didn't say anything. See, that way you don't say anything. I'll just read a few more. Now, I want you to notice pages 56 and 57. When we're tempted, who should we come to according to the Bible? We find help in time of need because He was tempted like we are and is able to help those who are tempted. Listen to this. Blessed Alan... One day was assaulted by a violent temptation and had all but yielded, for he had not turned to Mary for help when she appeared to him. To teach him to be more alert the next time, she struck him and said, If you had prayed to me, you would not find yourself in such trouble. On page 58, when we are tempted, says St. Thomas of Villanova. All we need do is what little chicks do. Let me see. In the Bible, where do the chicks go, according to the Bible? Jesus said, how often I wanted to gather you under my wings as a hen gathers her chicks. But notice what this says. When we are tempted, says St. Thomas of Villanova, all we need do is what little chicks do. As soon as they see a hawk, they run under the wings of the mother hen. And this is the way we should act when tempted. Not linger to reason with the danger, but immediately fly and take cover under Mary's mantle. On page 73, she's spoken of as the refuge. We're to flee to her, to find refuge. Hebrews 6.18 says that Jesus, it uses the very words, we're to flee to Jesus behind the veil to find refuge. On page 107, She's spoken of as the great protector. It says, And St. Germanus exclaims, No one, O Most Holy Mary, can know God but through you. Is that true? No one can be saved or redeemed but through you. O Mother of God, no one obtains mercy but through you, O full of grace. Whoever is protected by Mary will be saved. Whoever is not will be lost. She's spoken of as the one who blesses. Who's the one who blesses? Who are we blessed through according to the Bible? On page 49, then come, says St. Bernard. Notice how he's always quoting the church fathers. Let us throw ourselves at the feet of this good mother and cling to them and not leave them until she blesses us and takes us for her children. She's spoken of as Savior. On page 150 of this book, says, "On the other hand, those who do not serve Mary will not be saved. For those who lack the assistance of this great lady, also lack the assistance of her son and the whole court of heaven." On page 55, just summarizing, she is called the light. She is called the dawn, the sun at noonday. In all of its brightness. She is called the breath. On page 56, she is our breath. In fact, on page 57, it says that if the mother had been home when the prodigal left, instead of a father, the son would have returned a lot quicker. When you're in dangers and doubts and trials, cry out to her, according to page 59. Page 61 says that she is our life. The Bible says that Jesus is our life. She's called the protector from Satan on pages 61 and 62. In fact, it says on page 76 that if Satan would choose to be saved by pleading with Mary, he could actually be saved. On page 79, I have to read this statement. On page 79, it says that Mary has power to change the heart. Let me ask you, can any human being change someone's heart? Notice, you are pure, I am darkened with sin. You are humble, I am proud. This is a prayer to Mary. You are holy, I am sinful. This then is what you have to do, O Mary. Since you love me, make me resemble you. You have power to change hearts. Take mine and change it. Show the world what you can do for anyone who loves you. Make me holy. Make me a child worthy of his mother. Amen. She's called omnipotent. On page 114, notice this statement. Page 114. At the command, listen to this. At the command of Mary, all obey, even God. She is omnipotent. This is, this is Roman Catholic teaching. She is omnipotent. For the queen, according to all laws, enjoys the same privileges as the king. And since the son's power also belongs to the mother, this mother is made omnipotent by the omnipotent son. Incidentally, this would explain how Mary supposedly can hear millions of people praying to her at the same time in many different nations of the world, in many different languages, and she can hear all those prayers and answer them all at the same time. You would have to be omniscient in order to be that. Isn't that right? How does she deal with the prayers that people have in their minds? She must be able to read the mind. How can she appear in many places at the same time? She must must be omnipresent. Is this serious, what we're talking about? Listen, folks. In exalting Mary, what do we do? We depreciate Jesus. That's the whole issue. In fact, she called the ladder. Supposedly, this saint of the Catholic Church had a, had a dream, and in the dream he saw two ladders. Ligori tells this story. At the head of one ladder was, was uh, Jesus. And this individual started uh, climbing up the ladder, and when he saw Jesus, he fell off. Then a voice was heard that said, try the other ladder. So he gets on the other ladder and climbs up, and he sees at the top of the ladder, Mary! Piece of cake! He made it all the way to the top, real fast. Because Mary is more loving and more compassionate in Roman Catholic theology. In fact, you remember that it says that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess. Listen to this. The whole Trinity, O Mary, page 165, gave you a name above every name after that of your divine Son so that in your name every knee should bend, of things in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. In fact, do you know that this book says that when we come directly to Jesus, we have reason to fear His vengeance, but when we come to Mary, we can be certain of God's mercy. Let me just read you one or two statements here. Being that I've gone over, I might as well completely go over. Page 75. Listen to this. It is true, O Lord, that in those days there was no one to raise up sinners and hold back your wrath. For Mary was not born yet. Speaking about the Old Testament. But now she restrains her divine Son, lest He destroy sinners. There is no one more capable of seizing and holding the sword of God's vengeance than you, most beloved of God. On page 127, we find a similar comment. Page 127, it says, Another purpose behind Our Lady's being made the Mother of God was that those sinners who, in the rigorous justice of God, could never be saved because of their wicked lives, might still have a chance for salvation through her sweet mercy and powerful intercession. In His eagerness to show you mercy, in His eagerness to show you mercy, God has given His own Son as your advocate. And then to make your confidence even stronger, he has given another advocate who obtains through her prayers whatever she asks. asks Go to Mary and you will see salvation. In fact, do you know that Ligori says that uh, if you pray to Mary you'll get answered a lot quicker than if you than if you pray to Jesus? I'm going to read this. This will be the last quotation I'll read. This is found. Amen? this is on page 85 and 86 Saint Anselm to increase our confidence says this when we pray to the mother of God we are heard more quickly than when we call directly on the name of Jesus for her son is not only our Lord but our judge but when we call on the name of his mother though our own merits will not ensure an answer yet her merits Intercede for us and we are answered. That's awesome, isn't it? One final point. Why is Mary attractive to the people who belong to the Roman Catholic communion? I think there are several reasons. One reason is because even though the official theological proclamations of the Roman Catholic Church teach that Jesus was fully man. Jesus is still God and He is somewhat inaccessible to human beings. In other words, He's human, but He's not as human as Mary. Because Mary is not God. See, Jesus is still a little bit above us, but Mary is on our same level and therefore we need to come through her to her son. But there are other reasons as well. As I mentioned, when I was in the city of Medellin, I decided that I would go visit uh, some Roman Catholic cathedrals firsthand to see their their statues their images and also at the same time to uh, observe the people that were worshiping there and so one morning uh, I went downtown and incidentally if you go to Medellin uh, there are cathedrals uh, within three to five minutes walking distance all over the city it's amazing and you're not talking little churches like this one (laughs) <laughs> you say, Little, this is a big church. We're talking awesome cathedrals. And so I visited three. One of them was the Metropolitan Cathedral, the main cathedral in the city of Medellin. I'll tell you what I discovered. And I already knew it because I'd seen this before, but I decided that I would uh, go and check it out again. I looked at the images in the, in the sanctuary or in the cathedral and you know that the images of Mary outnumber those of Jesus five to one. I counted. Not only that, but when Jesus is depicted, almost a hundred percent of the cases, Jesus is depicted either dying on a cross or dead in the arms of Mary. Have you heard ever heard of the Pieta? That's Jesus. the the dead Jesus in the arms of his mother? In every cathedral you have the stages of the cross. In other words, in the psyche of people, Jesus is the dying God. Whereas Mary is the living mother. Psychologically, that works on the minds of people. Mary is always God beautifully. Always has a beautiful face. Always is bubbling forth with life, Jesus is the dead God, the suffering God. And incidentally, this is the reason why hundreds of thousands of Catholics are becoming Protestants, because the Protestant churches teach, us that, teach that Jesus Christ is the living Christ, who stands at the right hand of God and ever intercedes for us and represents us before the Father. But you know what else is interesting? When Jesus is not presented as a dying Savior, He's presented as a child in the arms of Mary. Mary is larger than life, whereas Jesus is always the baby. The interesting thing is that even in the statues of the the glorified Mary, glorified in Roman Catholic theology, that is, where she's standing on the moon and she's God with the sun and she has the stars on her head, the crown on her head that has the twelve stars, even then Jesus is presented as the child in her arms. So Jesus is perpetually conceived of as the child and Mary as the protector. Or else Jesus is presented as the one who is dying, whereas Mary is the one who is presented as she who is alive, who protects, who watches over you. After all, how much protection can you get from a child? Not only that, on one of the statues, Mary appeared with a scepter in her right hand and the baby Jesus in her other arm. Now that's very significant. You know, when you go to Roman Catholic churches, look at the statues. They tell you a lot about the belief system of the people. They tell you a lot about how people feel. And I'll tell you, folks, as I sat there in Mass and I listened to them begin the Mass by praying to Mary, and as I heard them end the Mass singing songs to Mary, and I saw people coming to a statue of Mary in one of these cathedrals where they could actually come up to the statue and place their hands on the feet of that icon or that statue, that image, and you could see the anxiety and the suffering and the pain and the sincerity of the people who really wanted forgiveness of sin. They wanted their lives changed. And grabbing onto the feet of Mary and, and praying and begging Mary to fulfill their request. I'll tell you, I have tears in my eyes. Because the Bible says that Mary is dead awaiting the sound of the trunk of God. In fact, I had a quotation here, which I'm sure now that I need it, I will... Not. Oh, here it is, right here. What does Ellen White have to say about this? This manuscript releases, volume 5, page 102. She says, Satan inspired these men who claimed to be Christ's vice-regents upon earth. Prayers are offered to private saints in heaven for many favors, but these men are not in heaven. They lie in their graves until the coming of the Son of Man in the clouds of heaven. Mary, the mother of our Lord, has not been raised. She is waiting the sound of the trump of God that shall call the dead from their prison house. All the prayers offered to Mary fall to the ground. Mary's ears have not yet been pierced by the sound of the trump of God. So who is this Mary that's appearing all over the world then? Well, that's going to be our last subject. So if I were to ask you this morning, who is the fairest of them all? Who would you say? Jesus. One final point, and promise, God's honor, this is the final one. There's another reason why in Roman Catholic theology Mary is so attractive. And that is that in Latin American culture, as well as in Eastern European culture, the mother is the center of home life. The father is usually an absentee father. I can speak particularly for Latin America. It's somewhat expected that the father will be unfaithful to the marriage vows. I'm not talking about in the Adventist church now. But, you know, it's not such a scandalous thing as it is here. The father is aloof. He's the authoritarian figure. He's the one who meets out punishment and justice when the kids misbehave. And many times you have deadbeat fathers who don't even show up. And so who is the one that holds the home together? It's the mother. And so this idea of Mary being the loving mother, mother And Jesus, being the authoritarian figure, being the aloof one, is is, uh, built into the sociological structure. In fact, the mother is the one who intercedes when the father gets real angry and wants to punish the kids. The father says, no, 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 the mother says, father, hold off. And that same idea is transposed to marriage. And that's why for Roman Catholics it's so hard sometimes to change from Mary to Jesus. Because in doing this, they feel like they're slapping the Holy Mother in the face. And they're rejecting the, the family. And they're rejecting the home. And they're rejecting the mother. But we must show that Jesus is everything that is attributed to Mary. That Jesus is truly the fairest of them all. That Jesus is our all, our life, our intercessor, our savior, our judge, yes, our father, and our brother who will come to take us to live eternally with him in the kingdom of heaven. Who is the fairest of them all? Cal Hagen is going to tell us who the fairest of them all is as we listen to our closing special music. Let's listen carefully to the words. In fact, if you want to look them up in your hymnal, look them up. Fairest Lord Jesus. thank you for the privilege of being here this morning, and we thank you for Jesus, our all. We thank you that you sent him to die for us, and we're thankful that he lives for us. We're thankful that he's coming soon again. Help us, Lord, to place our trust only and exclusively in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.